Hello, welcome back. It's great to have your company. This is MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories of the moment with the assistance of our team of reporters around the world. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. In just under 10 minutes from now, we'll be crossing to a courtroom in New York City for the latest on the trial of Roger Ong, the former Goldman Sachs banker who's been caught up in the spectacular 1MDB bribery and corruption scandal in Malaysia. It's a story of who knew what, who paid off whom, and a key witness who impersonated his former wife when talking to the woman he was courting. Yes, it's an incredible tale, and our reporter Robert Thomason has spent the past few weeks in court covering developments, and we'll hear from him very soon. First up, though, cryptocurrency. When the global community announced economic sanctions against Russia over the invasion of Ukraine, every parrot in the pet shop appeared to have an opinion on whether cryptocurrencies would offer Moscow a way to sidestep the tough measures. Well, those fears have, for now at least, turned out to be somewhat overblown. Yet concerns that virtual currencies could be misused in this crisis have sparked a global conversation about how to regulate the cryptocurrencies, and the campaign to introduce measures to rein in crypto exchanges appears to be gaining momentum. Fiona Maxwell is a senior correspondent at MLEX, and she covers financial services from London, and she joins us on the line now. Uh, Fiona, firstly to that key question, are cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin uh, being used to circumvent sanctions placed on Russia? So it's a hard one to answer, but I think the signs point to two things. Uh, Yes, they are, uh, but probably not as much as we think. So the reason I say yes, they are is because regulators, policymakers across the world are responding with either some strong words or actual measures. And I think it's fair to say they wouldn't be doing this if they hadn't seen evidence to suggest there is some activity in this area. But I would say it It can't be a huge amount uh, because the value of virtual currencies like Bitcoin, it has risen, but not massively by Bitcoin standards. Um, And it's a hugely volatile currency anyway. So even in normal times, it can go up and down by double digit percentages in a day. And actually, you know, to to paraphrase um, the former Goldman Sachs chairman, Lloyd Blankfein, who made, I think, a valuable point on Twitter last week. You would think crypto would be having its moment right now, is what he said, but actually we're not really seeing that in the price. So that brings us to the basic question of whether or not it is in fact possible to use crypto to circumvent the measures. What's the consensus on that? So I think, again, if I can be slightly evasive, it's probably a a yes and no answer. So policymakers are keen to stress that Bitcoin and other virtual coins are not immune from enforcement by financial sanctions regulators. Any attempt to avoid legal sanctions, whether that's through the use of fiat currency like the dollar or the pound or a virtual one like Bitcoin, uh, is a criminal offence. So, yes, it's probably in theory possible to use crypto as an evasion tool. But this, this kind of goes back to what I said before. Maybe some particularly tech-minded individuals could try to use crypto to get around these sanctions, but I think in reality it's probably a lot harder than that. Firstly, are financial institutions going to be doing this? No, probably not. Not least because of you know the practical impossibility of changing very complex transactions into crypto. Um, I, I'm not really 
sure how they would go about doing that. Uh, also, it's worth noting that the concept of trading crypto has this image of being uh, opaque and, you know, secrets. Uh, but but it's not. Every transaction is stored right there on the blockchain. And I, I think the last point to note, really, is uh, cryptocurrency exchanges are taking their own action. So Coinbase, uh, which is a very well-known exchange, has blocked tens of thousands of wallets it's suspected were being used to evade sanctions. And Binance, another very well-known one, has blocked Visa and MasterCards that were issued in Russia from being used on its platform. So, yes, this is it is potentially possible to use crypto, but there will be consequences and it would be a lot harder than we might think it would be. And for those uh, crypto platforms that are not taking those kinds of measures, what can regulators do and what are regulators doing at the moment? So... Crypto is actually effectively unregulated uh, for financial services purposes. Um, You know, they still have to follow the law. uh, And if the law is, um, you know, there are sanctions on this country, on these on these companies, um, they they, they can't just uh, evade them. That that would be illegal. But from a kind of general financial services regulatory perspective, like I say, there is pretty much no regulation here and there have been calls from technocrats to change this so i think this is quite an interesting case because you know clearly there is some activity that policymakers are nervous about and it's really important that these sanctions have the full effect that governments want them to have given the gravity of the situation and uh, you know in, in ukraine what Russia is doing and, you know, the fact that the West really does want to isolate Russia's economy as a result of what's happening. So I guess if crypto is being used even on a small scale to get around the sanctions, then policymakers are going to want to do something. Um, And there have been a few announcements about this, uh, most vocally, I would say, from EU regulators and, and actually very recently the US policymakers. France's finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, said that the EU had cracked down on this, although didn't go into any huge detail about how they would do so. And I would say generally this has kind of reawakened the wider call to regulate crypto more generally. In the US, this is a a great example. Um, US President Biden signed an executive order on cryptocurrencies, which doesn't actually impose regulation, but essentially requires federal agencies to produce reports and policy recommendations, which could then end up in tougher rules for crypto. Now, the, the, the premise, as you mentioned before, is that crypto isn't regulated for financial services purposes. But could that change? I mean, is there a, a sense that perhaps that is an area of regulation that could increase? So I think this is this is actually probably the really interesting point from a financial services regulatory perspective, at least. So I said before, you know, there have been a lot of calls to regulate cryptocurrencies in the same way as other payment systems. And I I, I wouldn't say this has fallen on deaf ears, but there's not been a huge amount of progress. I, I think that's fair to say. And there are, there are two sides here. So one is the consumer side. And in the UK, that's the Financial Conduct Authority, which wants crypto to be regulated in a way that ensures normal retail investors know what they're getting into if they decide to put some of their money into crypto and, you know, really be aware that if they decide to put their life savings into Bitcoin, there's a chance they get none of it back. And then on the banking side, 
the Bank of England is increasingly concerned that as the crypto world becomes more intertwined with traditional investors, so you know, banks, insurers, uh, that there are financial stability risks if the value of, of a currency, a virtual currency, plummets in one day. So I think what the interesting point here is that the, there are a lot of policymaker measures being taken, and there are a lot of policies being taken to ensure that crypto isn't being used to evade uh, the, the sanctions placed on Russia. But I think what we could then see is that this could inspire wider regulation. So it's it's possible that, you know, after many years of regulators calling for this, that we could actually see bigger and more forceful regulatory action. But in terms of the timing and the current crisis, is regulatory work on crypto a priority or should we be expecting other sanctions? I think it definitely is a priority, at least the aim at the moment to ensure that crypto cannot be used to evade the sanctions. But I would say everything is moving at such speed at the moment with additional sanctions and more punitive measures being taken against the Russian economy each day. I I think this is kind of being blended into the overall message that Moscow needs to be punished and there is no way to get around these sanctions, you know, that whether that's through crypto, whether that's through normal currency, it's just general, the general message. I, I think probably crypto isn't the highest item on the priority list right now. Probably that's, you know, Western countries, particularly in the EU, trying to find a way to wean themselves off their reliance on Russia for oil and gas. So I do think there are more things to be done there, um, particularly on removing additional Russian banks from the SWIFT system, which is a financial messaging system. Some banks have already been blocked, but the banks that are particularly linked uh, to having energy ties to the EU uh, have not yet. And I, I think we'll see more action on that. So generally, I imagine there's lots more to come on tougher sanctions generally, and I imagine more on crypto. Fiona, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Let's uh, speak again very soon. Thanks, James. Fiona Maxwell, an MLEX senior reporter covering financial services from our offices in London. And we'll post Fiona's analysis of the regulatory response to cryptocurrencies and their role in the war in Ukraine at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. Just head for the News Hub tab for the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis. And that's also where you'll find an archive of MLEX's podcasts. Still to come on today's program, sex, lies and bribes worth millions of dollars. And of course, you can subscribe to MLEX's podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. Now, you don't have to be an expert in global bribery and corruption to have heard of the One Malaysia Development Berhad scandal, better known as 1MDB. The case centred on Malaysia, with the former Prime Minister Najib Razak accused of channelling hundreds of millions of dollars into his personal bank account from a government-run development company, with billions of dollars ultimately diverted from the fund. Effects of that scandal have been felt all around the world, and American investment bank Goldman Sachs has also found itself embroiled in the case for its role in facilitating the transactions. That culminated in a multi-billion dollar settlement with the US Department of Justice, but former Goldman Sachs bankers are still being pursued 
And one of them is named Roger Ong. His trial has been unfolding over past weeks in a federal court in New York. And luckily for us, MLEX's anti-bribery and corruption reporter Robert Thomason has been in court over the past weeks following the case. I caught up with Robert a bit earlier and began by asking him for an overview of the charges against Roger Ong. Uh, Roger Ong is accused of participating in a multi-billion dollar embezzlement, bribery and money laundering scheme in which uh, the bribes were paid to secure business for Goldman Sachs from the Malaysian Sovereign Development Fund called 1MDB. he, he is accused of conspiring to help the bribery take place. And he is also accused of laundering the illicit proceeds. Well, the proceeds were in U.S. dollars, so they went through a correspondent bank in the United States, and that is why he is being tried in the United States in the Eastern District of New York. He is contesting the charges, of course, And we have been in trial for almost four weeks now. Also, as an aside, he's facing charges in Malaysia uh, that relate to making false representations uh, about the deals. Um, But what I'm covering is the New York trial. Now, as you rightly pointed out, it is in the fourth week now. What have been the major developments of this trial? Well, there, there were two. One was a very tardy series of uh, document releases by the U.S. Justice Department to the defense. There were a number of emails uh, that DOJ had been looking at to filter out privileged information, things like marital conversations and attorney-client conversations. And uh, the evening after the opening statements, uh, they released like 120,000 pages, much to the chagrin of the defense and the judge. The defense even said it was considering calling for a mistrial. And then, about a week later, they found another series of about 15,000 emails that had escaped DOJ's notice. So that was one development. Uh, It's caused delays in the trial, and as I said, it, it really puts a cloud on the prosecution. Uh, Another thing that happened was testimony by a former colleague of Ong, a fellow named Tim Leisner. Um, And Leisner has pleaded guilty to the bribery and money laundering conspiracy charges in relation to the 1MDB scandal. And he signed uh, a cooperation agreement with DOJ, and part of that was to testify. And he is doing so, or he was doing so, against Don. And that has been extremely interesting testimony. Uh, He has gone over a meeting in London with a fellow named Joe Lowe, who was really the central kingpin of the whole 1MDB scheme. And at that London meeting, Lowe allegedly constructed a chart of everyone in Malaysia and Abu Dhabi who needed to be um, need to be bribed. And Ong was at that, at that meeting. Now, Leisner's uh, testimony has been at times quite colourful, hasn't it? Maybe tell us something about that. Well, um, yes, it has been. Uh, he has admitted lying many times 
in, in his past. The most relevant to the charges, he, he lied to Goldman Sachs about the involvement of Joe Lowe. Uh, he, he lied about may, you know, being part of the bribe scheme. But he also has admitted to lying to uh, former wives and girlfriends uh, about his relations uh, with them and among them. Um, and also uh, he has admitted to forging some divorce documents in the course of marrying a new wife. And none, none of this, of course, relates to the trial directly, but obviously the uh, the, the defence lawyers are trying to uh, question his credibility as a witness, right? They are attacking it, challenging it. Um, yeah, they're, they're really hammering him about that. At one point, the defence attorney called him a cunning liar and a rare liar. Uh, they're making a very big deal of the fact that Leisner has a, um, a repeated history of lying to people who are very close to him, ex-wives, in order to get what he wants. And in opening statements, they, they said he was essentially doing this, you know, uh, being dishonest towards their client, the defendant, Roger Ong, you know, basically for the same reason, to get something out of him. Um, and what, what he wants to get out uh, of this testimony is a lighter sentence. Uh, there's no guarantee he will get a lighter sentence, but um, but he did sign the cooperation agreement and he is testifying. So the you know so, so the defense is really hammering away at that. Now now this week, Leisner finished his testimony, and on the last day, the prosecutors recapitulated the statements that he had made relating to the charges and they they were basically saying yes he has lied about a lot of other things in his life and in his past but on these you know specific things about the meeting in london uh, meetings in abu dhabi roger ung's uh connection to joe Lowe. they asked him are you telling the truth about that and he's he, he said yes um so, so so the question will be whom um, who does the jury believe? It will really come down to uh, a matter of ha- how much DOJ can corroborate what Leisner has said versus how much damage the defense has done to Leisner's you know, already spotted uh, reputation. And I can say that because Leisner repeatedly said, yes, I did very bad things. I mean, Leisner at this point uh, is is uh, admitting that he has done some very bad things and has been very dishonest in his past. Uh, he has said that you know he, he uh, wants to start a new chapter now. So uh, la- you know late later, probably in, in April, um, we, we will see uh, what the jury thinks about it. Okay, so how long is the trial expected to last? Should we expect another four weeks, or is it close to wrapping up? Um, well, well, the trial itself, the testimony, uh, will probably go through the end, end of March, possibly into the very beginning of April. And then it would go to the jury for deliberations, and we don't know how long that will take. Robert, thank you so much for walking us through this uh, very complex but uh, still very interesting uh, trial in New York. I really appreciate it. I'll speak to you again soon. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.
And that was MLEX reporter Robert Thomason speaking to me earlier from just outside the New York courtroom where he has been following the Roger Ong trial. Now, listening into that conversation is our Southeast Asia correspondent, Jet Damaso Santos. So, uh, Jet, you heard just now that Robert mentioned how these revelations are reverberating in Southeast Asia. What is the state of play in Malaysia on this front? Yes, James. So, you know, Malaysian authorities have been investigating this case for years. So you can imagine what a shock it was to hear Tim Leisner reveal things on the stand that um, they were not aware of. There were new details about how the former prime minister and his wife would leverage their positions, such as, you know, to get their daughter into Goldman Sachs um, or demand a large donation to a specific to a specific charity. But in terms of dirty money, there are two things in particular that stand out. First was um, Leisner's claim that there was an unprecedented overnight transfer of about a billion dollars to a 1MDB joint venture um, in 2009, and that this was approved quickly because the husband of the then central bank governor uh, had received a bribe. Uh, And then second, this uh, whole affair that Tim Leisner had with the former chief executive of a major media company in Malaysia. So he said that he spent about $10 million to buy her a London home in order to prevent her from revealing his involvement in the 1MDB scheme. So Malaysian officials are now saying they didn't know about these because the US DOJ had been keeping the information to themselves. Tell me something about how all of these uh, new revelations by Tim Leisner are now likely to play out in Malaysia. What are likely to be the the repercussions of what's emerged? So these are now putting pressure on Malaysian authorities to sort of double down efforts um, to fully uncover the 1MDB case. Uh, actually, a deputy minister in the prime minister's department had to face questions from parliament and assure them that they are going to thoroughly investigate all of these new claims. Uh, the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission, for example, has since opened an investigation into the former CEO of the media company, the the former mistress. So they've frozen about $10 million of her assets and they're looking to recover this. So she has been cooperating so far. Now, the husband of the former central bank governor, uh, he's denied the claim, the bribe, uh, but Malaysian authorities have been investigating him and his wife for other M1MDB-related allegations. Uh, so Leisner's claims put it put the spotlight back on this part of the scandal. And the Malaysian government has also said it will try to get more information from the US DOJ or figure out a way to cooperate more closely. Okay, Jet, thank you so much for this update. I'll catch you next time. All right. Thank you, James. Jet Tomaso Santos is MLEX's Southeast Asia correspondent. She was speaking to us from Jakarta. And our reporting on this case continues, but for now we'll post Robert Thomason's most recent story from the Brooklyn Court at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com. All you have to do is click on the News Hub tab and the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis will be at your fingertips. While subscribers with an interest in the 1MDB case have plenty of information at their disposal, we've split it up into different portfolios covering developments in Hong Kong, Malaysia, the US, which takes in obviously the Goldman Sachs side of this, and also Switzerland, and there's plenty of weekend reading in it for you if that's what you need to make it through until Monday. 
Sadly, though, that's where we'll have to leave you for now. Thank you very much for your company today. Don't forget to listen to us again next week at more or less the same time. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. Bye for now. Bye for now.